From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, the context of glaucoma. And so he looked at, uh, I think it was six eyes, and he counted axons. He found that you needed to lose 40 to 50% of the nerve tissue before you could detect a defect. First this. I travel a lot. It's one of the perks of the work I do. As fantastic as Hangzhou or Jaipur or Barcelona are, I'm always amazed at how beautiful my own country is. Nowhere is this more in evidence than in Park City, Utah. Words truly fail. That's why I'm so happy that iWorld holds its surgical summit in Park City. Join me in this collegial, informal, and highly educational event in one of the most beautiful places on earth. Go to surgicalsummit.iworld.org. That's surgicalsummit.iworld.org. I'll see you on the slopes. As ophthalmologists, we know how to recognize and treat glaucoma. Now, if you think about that, that's a pretty incredible statement. We don't know the underlying mechanism of glaucoma, and we don't even know the ways in which our treatments work. That's not to say that we don't have an idea of the histopathology or the fact that lowering intraocular pressure is beneficial, but we really don't know what the connection between these two ideas is. This recognition of the pathology of glaucoma without a root understanding of its mechanism is nothing new. Joel Schumann recently published an article on the history of this diagnosis and the context in which modern and indeed future diagnostics and therapeutics fit in. I'm delighted to have Dr. Schumann as my guest today. Your review starts with the inception of the idea of glaucoma. Reading this, I'm reminded of the ancient Greek idea of the atom, which is essentially a quantum of matter and is really only incidentally related to our current notion of the atom. Similarly, the ideas of Aristotle and Galen that glaucoma had to do with fluids in the eye seems to me only incidentally related to our current idea of glaucoma. At what point did the word glaucoma actually correspond with our idea of uh, progressive optic neuropathy? So it's interesting that you you say that, and I I think that in the old days, um, and by that I mean really old, like um, before the year zero, um, that uh, people used a term that we currently use to mean a much wider swath of things than how we currently apply that term. And I think glaucoma falls in that uh, rubric as does leprosy, for instance. Um, uh, so I don't think it was really until um, maybe the early 18th century um, with Brousseau, uh, where he published the anatomy, uh, that uh, glaucoma was uh, associated with what we conceive of as uh, glaucoma. And then um, St. Eve's uh, in the early 19th century um, uh describe the clinical features of glaucoma, and that was much more similar to um, to what we consider uh, glaucoma. And then um, a little bit later in the 19th century, Mackenzie um, uh, talked about 
the features uh, that were uh, associated with glaucoma in six stages um, and talked about pressure reduction, intraocular pressure reduction, um, as a treatment uh, for glaucoma, whereas St. Eve's had only discussed the, you know, the advanced uh, stage of glaucoma. How was the idea of elevated intraocular pressure developed, and how was the idea of an outflow pathway ultimately demonstrated? So the um, the idea of high pressure being associated with glaucoma um, probably uh, started at least in the uh, 17th century with Bannister, um, and he described uh, digital pressure uh, of the eye, so feeling in the eye with your finger and uh, the eye being hard. Um, the outflow pathways um, really uh, go back uh, quite a ways uh, to, um, they go back to the early dissections uh, of the eye and when the anatomists were uh, evaluating the structures of the eye. But, uh, you know, it's quite small um, and difficult to see without uh, some sort of magnification in terms of, um, you know, the um, aqueous outflow pathway and the network of uh, vessels. Um, and that's that's probably more kind of 20th century stuff when um, people started doing um, neoprene uh, or vulcanized rubber uh, casting of uh of those structures and uh for that you're you're looking in like the mid-20th century as early as 1870 the idea of metabolic and vascular contributions to the pathogenesis of glaucoma was being discussed given current debates about such etiologies how on earth did ophthalmologists of this time develop and, and test such ideas so um i would say that they were not really tested back then um, but, you know, people hypothesize a, a lot of different things. And, um, gee, uh, you know, back at, at the time that you're talking about in 1870, uh, people were still working out the phlogiston theory of uh, the uh, elements of, of air and uh, what oxygen was. So um, I, don't, I don't know that, you know, the grasp that they had on it really compares to where we are now even though we're still debating uh, the vascular contribution and the mechanical, and, um, and then the new thing thrown in is uh, the uh, neurotoxic uh, component. Um, you know, and, and who knows, 100 years from now, they may say, well, you know, back in the 21st century, those guys only conceived of it as, you know, uh, a uh, optic neuropathy caused by pressure and... Um, you know, maybe there was neurotoxicity mixed in and uh, blood flow was somehow related. Um, but nowadays we know better. So, uh, you know, none of us will be around to see that. Um, but, uh, it, you know, what we know now uh, is still very little. Um, we know that if an optic nerve is exposed to pressure, a healthy optic nerve is exposed to very high pressure, for some period of time that it will cup and it will look like what we call glaucoma. Um, the vascular hypothesis, uh, it's still popular um, in, in some areas. Uh, I think OCT uh, may, or OCT angiography, uh, may put to rest some of the um, uh, controversy about you know, which comes first, the decrease in blood supply or the um, decrease in tissue to be supplied with blood. 
Um, and then the neurotoxicity um, is uh, is another component um, where there are some people who argue that it's a primary part of the injury pathway, um, whereas others say it's secondary to the mechanical damage. So um, we, we still are very far from working it all out. How old is objective visual field testing? And at what point was the connection drawn between visual field loss and, and glaucoma? And in terms of how old objective visual field testing is, I would say it hasn't been born yet. Um, the, it's still a subjective test. We ask a person to look into a bowl and press a button when they see a light. Um, and that's a pretty subjective event. Um, I think that uh, if you're talking about the association between uh, loss of visual field and, um, and glaucoma, well, that, that goes all the way back to Hippocrates. He talked about that, um, and that was in the 5th century B.C., uh, but if you're talking about mapping the visual field, um, that's more uh, 17th to 19th century. Um, so um, Ulmus of Padua in 1602 uh, mapped the visual field, and he included the hair and the nose uh, in that. And uh, in 1807, uh, Thomas Young um, mapped out the uh, dimensions uh, of the visual field. Um, and then the technique was refined since then, but it, it's still a subjective test that's interpreted subjectively. Variability in, in subjective cup to disc assessment was recognized fairly early on. When were the first tools developed to produce reproducible quantitative measurements of optic cup to disc ratios? And, and then how widely were these tools adopted? The objective assessment of the disc, um, probably uh, I would attribute it to photogrammetry, which was in the probably late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, and Bernie Schwartz um, was really the, the guy who um, developed uh, this technique to a, you know, or refined the technique uh, to a useful level in research. But it was never uh, something that clinicians did because it, it involved a great deal of work, um, and so it was basically you know taking an image of the disc and then mapping it out, uh, and then uh, measuring the structures uh, that you've mapped out, um, and so nobody's going to do that while the patient's in their lane. Um, it just takes too much time and. Uh, in the uh, 1980s, um, a technique was developed called raster stereography. And that was really the first um, commercial uh, uh, quantitative analysis of the optic nerve head. Uh, and um, I think it was called the PAR uh, IS something optic nerve head analyzer um, was, uh, was that unit. And a number of people... Uh, did a, a lot of work uh, with that, and uh, some people used it uh, for clinical purposes. Um, and a little bit later, um, uh, optic nerve head um, confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscopy uh, was developed late, uh, mid to late 1980s. And uh, that was widely adopted um, 
there were a few machines that did it when the uh, technology first came out, but um, Heidelberg uh, won that uh, that battle, and uh, the HRT, the Heidelberg Retina Tomograph, um, uh, has you know was a very popular instrument for a long period of time and used heavily uh, clinically um, in patient offices throughout the uh, throughout the world, um, and then uh, uh, OCT. Um, uh, we invented in the um, early 1990s, and uh, th- it became a commercial unit in '96. Um, and it didn't really get adopted for widespread clinical use um, until after 2002, um, with the introduction of the OCT3 or Stratus OCT, um, and then uh, was very uh, rapidly taken up. Uh, after the um, development of spectral domain OCT, uh, which uh, had the first commercial commercial unit, was in 2006. When I was a resident, we were taught that a 50% loss of nerve fiber layer was required to produce a measurable visual field defect. Joel, where, where, where does this come from? Well, it comes from Harry Quigley's work. Uh, and so he looked at, uh, I think it was six eyes, and uh, he counted axons, and he had other people counting axons too, I think, but uh, that was a very quantitative study, uh, and he had the visual field performance um, of uh, the subjects before they died, and then analyzed those eyes, and he found that you needed to lose 40 to 50% of the nerve tissue before you could detect a defect. The caveat there, aside from the small n, um, is that uh, this was with Goldman perimetry, and uh, Goldman perimetry is not as sensitive as automated perimetry, which is what we use these days. So that figure is um, true for Goldman perimetry, but that's somewhat archaic. Um, and so nowadays we think of uh, the studies that he and Harworth did um, where uh, they looked at automated perimetry, and, and for those studies, it was about a 30% loss of tissue, uh, that loss of neural tissue that you would need. And then we studied that as well um, in living patients, um, and we found that you needed to lose about uh, 17% of the uh, nerve tissue uh, before you could detect an abnormality on visual fields uh, using OCT. So OCT could measure abnormalities prior to their appearance or could measure thinness of the nerve fiber layer prior to the appearance of visual field abnormalities. But when the nerve fiber layer got to about 17% uh, below the um, average uh, RNFL thickness in normals and healthy people, um, then you started to see visual field defects. Occasionally, you would see a visual field defect in somebody who had a nerve fiber layer that was essentially normal. Um, and obviously, there's variability in how people are built and, and how they can perform. What is ellipsometry? Ellipsometry um, is another name uh, for, for scanning laser polarimetry. And scanning laser polarimetry um, was popular in the 1990s and uh, early 2000s. 
And that technology um, used polarized light uh, that was shown into the patient's eye. And then the um, phase change uh, was measured on the uh, backscatter or reflection of that uh, polarized light. And that um, gave a measure of how much birefringent tissue the polarized light had passed through. Um, the hypothesis that this was based on was that uh, most of the um, birefringent tissue uh, is in the nerve fiber layer, um, but that is not a true hypothesis. Uh, it, there's a lot of birefringence in the cornea and the um, uh, even the retinal pigment epithelium and certainly the sclera uh, and um, the the uh, the lens also has uh, some birefringence, and so um, you need to neutralize uh, the birefringence that you're not interested in, and look only at the birefringence that is related to glaucoma, which would be the birefringence of the nerve fiber layer, and that would give you an estimate of the uh, retinal nerve fiber layer thickness. Um, the machine that did this uh, was first called the nerve fiber analyzer, and then uh, it had a couple of numbers after it, and then it became the GDX, and then the GDX VCC, and the GDX Pro, and there were there were several iterations of this technology as um, more and more of the confounders were eliminated uh, from the analysis by using uh, certain uh, physical techniques or software techniques. And uh, the variability um, in the measures is really what, what killed it. Um, and so um, uh, scanning laser polarimetry uh, is not, um, not used very much anymore. I think we have better technology now. It's difficult to imagine practicing modern ophthalmology without OCT. You were central to the development of OCT. Can you tell me a bit about the development and adoption of this technology? Sure. Um, so uh, OCT was born um, really in Jim Fujimoto's lab uh, at MIT uh, in Cambridge. And um, uh, there were a number of people that were involved in its invention. Um, so uh, uh, Jim Fujimoto, um, David Wong, Eric Swanson, Charles Lin, uh, Carmen Pliofito, and myself were all involved in, in its invention and are, are on the patent. Um, the uh, technology was first um, uh, being used uh, for optical ranging. Uh, and in the eye, um, the uh, optical ranging was being done in the cornea. And the, uh, the reason that that application was chosen uh, is because uh, this new uh, treatment was being developed in the late 1980s uh, called um, eczema laser uh, corneal surgery and uh, PRK. And the uh, concept was that uh, you would use the OCT to tell you how thick the cornea was and how much tissue you had removed. Um, the, there were several problems with this, and uh, one problem um, was that it took a long time to do a single scan. So nowadays, there are commercial units that do 100 A scans per second. Um, back in the old days, um, you know, a, an A scan uh, would take 
uh, quite a few seconds. Um, and so it didn't really make sense uh, as a um, as a tool uh, to use during eczema laser uh, photorefractive surgery. And uh, in addition to that, you didn't need it uh, because you know how much tissue you take off with every laser pulse. So, um, so it was failing uh, for that purpose. Um, I happened to be a fellow in, um, in the laser laboratory at uh, Massachusetts Eye and Air Infirmary. Uh, I, actually, I was a glaucoma fellow, but I was doing some research in the laser lab. I wasn't, uh, uh, I wasn't a laser fellow, um, but I, um, I, I was doing a project that involved lasers. And so um, Carmen Pugliafito very generously allowed me to, um, to work in the, in the lab and pretty much gave me free reign. Uh, and so I, I heard about the uh, cornea project with this ranging device and after learning what wavelength uh, was being used, it occurred to me that um, maybe instead of looking at the cornea, we could be looking at the retina. Um, I went over to MIT uh, with a bag of calf eyes, and um, David Huang uh, was an MD-PhD student at the time. He's now uh, a faculty member at uh, Portland, Oregon uh, at OHSU. Um, and uh, David uh, was this brilliant student uh, who was working with uh, Fujimoto on um, optical coherence domain reflectometry, which was what the technology was called at the time. And um, you know, we I, I cut the calf eyes in half and we stuck the um, back half under the uh, probe beam, and uh, David. Um, you know, ran the uh, ran the machine, and uh, we were able to get a spike uh, from the retina, and so um, we had proof of principle, uh, and um, there was um, a lot of perspiration after that moment of inspiration, um, and uh, a lot of work was done uh, over uh, several years uh, in. Uh, refining the technology and accelerating the um, the speed of acquisition and developing a way to interrogate the eye um, in living beings, um, specifically humans, and um, we uh, we also benefited from David's um, uh, insight that you could put together a series of A scans and uh, interpolate between them to create a picture, uh, and that's when. OCDR became OCT, uh, optical coherence tomography, and that was the, that was all David. Um, so, uh, as an MD PhD student, he made uh, quite a few very important contributions and continues uh, to make uh, significant contributions in the field. OCTA holds tremendous promise, but it's also encumbered by important limitations, including the difficulty of identifying low-flow areas, and problems with vascular contiguity. How important is OCTA? I know you, you know the future. That's why I'm asking you this, this question, Joel. Nobody how, knows the future. How important is OCTA going to be uh, in the assessment of vasculopathy as an etiology or, or sequela of glaucoma? Yeah, so that's a, a really interesting question because right now OCTA has not found its place in glaucoma diagnostics. We know that um, the 
measurement of vascular density uh, corresponds with glaucoma damage uh, that's measured either structurally or by visual fields. And OCTA corresponds better uh, with visual fields, actually, than uh, structural OCT does. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is uh, that OCTA shows that the loss of vessels or the reduction in vessel density is actually um, related to the loss of tissue and follows the pattern of tissue loss. Um, so tissue is lost in a specific pattern in glaucoma because of where the damage occurs. Um, so if you uh, cause an injury at the level of the lamina cribosa, the neural tissue that's passing through that region is going to be damaged. And when, it, uh, when you map it out on the retina, it's going to form an arcuate pattern um, that's wider in the macula than it is at the optic nerve. The same is true in terms of the pattern uh, for the vasculature, but the same is not true for how the vasculature uh, is organized. So there's no reason for the vasculature to follow a pattern that the neural tissue follows, that the, that the nerve fiber layer follows, um, unless it's actually being controlled by the amount of tissue that it's feeding. So with the reduction in uh, nerve fiber layer thickness, you have a reduction in the need for oxygenation and uh, uh, removal of metabolic waste, and uh, so there's a reduction in vascular density. The vascular density um, also uh, corresponds spatially um, in the axial direction with uh, the loss of tissue that we see in glaucoma. Um, and that, that's what you would expect. Uh, so it's the more superficial vascular plexus um, that is affected in the macula um, and not the deeper vascular plexuses. Um, and in the uh, uh, peripapillary area, the same is true, although the uh, best measure there for glaucoma discrimination really is the radial uh, peripapillary capillary plexus, and that uh, obviously is associated with that wedge-like uh, loss of, of tissue. Um, so I, I think that uh, we're learning about uh, OCT angiography and, and what it can tell us about glaucoma already knowing that the there's loss of vasculature in the same pattern as structural loss and the fact that that has to be a consequence and not a cause of the structural loss I think is is important um, the other uh, interesting thing is um, you know that uh, the vessels aren't necessarily gone. Uh, so the OCT angiography only tells you, you know, where blood is moving. And so if the vessels are, are shut down for some reason and not being perfused but are present, we don't see them. Uh, but they may still be there. Uh, and, and so um, you can't take OCT angiography as gospel uh, for what is vascularized and what isn't. Um, it only shows you 
what's being perfused at the moment. That's really, really interesting. A number of ideologies have been put forth that do not easily lend themselves to structural analysis. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of uh, paying cause identification of mitochondrial dropout, uh, what he calls the uh, power uh, theory. Uh, what other diagnostic avenues are being pursued that will allow clinical measurements to elucidate glaucoma pathogenesis? Um, so there are a variety of uh, different uh, technologies that are um, uh, being investigated now. Uh, and uh, the mitochondrial hypothesis that you mentioned actually is, is one of them. Um, so uh, looking at mitochondria uh, in vivo in patients um, is possible, um, but it is difficult um, and it is certainly very far from being prime time. Um, but that would tell you about the metabolism of the uh, retinal ganglion cells as well as any other cells that you would you know care to evaluate um, but it is it is possible to to do that um, another uh, area is uh, oximetry so uh, by using uh, white light or visible light OCT um, where you're able to um, quantitate uh, the oxygen content of blood and so we can look at oxygen consumption uh, locally and globally uh, using uh, visible light OCT. Um, and that also is not ready for prime time, but is uh, further along uh, in the uh, development. Um, you know, and doing spectroscopy uh, also with visible light OCT is theoretically possible. Um, and. That's another uh, area for uh, for investigation and eventually, hopefully, clinical use. Um, so uh, then, there, and there's more than that uh, as well. Um, but there are a number of things that people are doing. Anything that you can think of, basically, is what people are investigating because the goal is to be able to identify the disease and its progression as early as uh, as early as possible. Joel, I want to thank you for uh, the, the first of all the article. The, this sort of thirty thousand foot view of uh, glaucoma was really compelling. It's really really neat stuff. Um, and, and of course, I want to thank you very much for the the generosity of the time that 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 you've shown me. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat um, and uh, and to have it recorded uh, with you. We we chat a lot, um, and uh, uh, to be able to um, to preserve it is uh, is kind of nice. Joel Schumann is director of the NYU Langone Eye Center and professor and chairman of ophthalmology at the New York University School of Medicine in New York. His paper, Glaucoma Diagnosis from the Artisanal to the Defined appears in the premier issue of Ophthalmology Glaucoma. Ask questions of Dr. Schumann or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. 
as seen from here, is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.